Our final speaker for tonight will be Danny Meadsday. Meadsday? Um, come again? Meadsday. Thank you. No, no. Once more? That. Thank you from uh, Museum Victoria in the corner. Uh, we spent a considerable amount of her childhood curled up inside a pillowcase pretending to be a dinosaur egg. Since that time, she's become the conservator of natural sciences for Museum Victoria. Danielle's love of museum conservation began the first time she, she saw an X-ray of a painting. She trained as an objects conservator at the University of Melbourne's Masters of Cultural Material Cons Conservation program and then stepped sideways into the sciences and has never looked back. Danielle is passionate about natural history and works with collection managers, curators and researchers across zoology, paleontology and geosciences to preserve the collections in good condition for the future. Danny. Thank you very much. Um, so the theme of science heroes conflicts a little bit with the two pioneers of paleontology I'd like to speak about tonight. Edward Drinker Cope and Othenial Charles Marsh did not heroically overcome poverty or oppression to rise to scientific greatness. They were both born into some privilege, in fact. Cope came from a very wealthy family in Pennsylvania and Marsh's family in New York were not particularly affluent, but he had a handy millionaire uncle, George Peabody, who funded much of his career. Descriptions of Marsh and Cope use the word spoilt a lot. In fact, spoiled is one of the more flattering adjectives used to describe this pair. Other descriptors I've heard, ever unhappy, underhand, unscrupulous, egotistical, mistrustful, jealous, ambitious, possessive, ruthless, strange and bitter. Hmm. So I was a little bit hesitant to tell their story uh, when there was a few more uh, underappreciated pioneers of paleontology out there, like Mary Annin who discovered her first ichthyosaur when she was 12 years old and spent the next 35 years patiently and skillfully extracting enormous sea monsters from the cliffs along the English Channel. But I'm happy to say that Mary Anning has already been spoken about at Labora Story, so she's someone else's hero too, which is fine, I can share, that's all right. And besides, the story of Martian Cope is just a really good story. Um, and their careers in paleontology did take the known species of dinosaur in North America from nine to 150. Their contributions also gave us some of the world's most beloved and iconic dinosaurs. The big sauropods, like the Apatosaurus and the Diplodocus, but also the Triceratops, Stegosaurus, virtually all oh, the Allosaurus, and virtually all the household names minus the T-Rex. It seemed to take a really frustratingly long time for paleontology as a science to get going. Although humans worldwide have been digging up fossil bone for many thousands of years, producing legends of dragons and cyclopses and giants, the appearance of these fossil bones had never really been attempted to be explained by science. For example, in 1787, an enormous fossil femur was discovered in New Jersey, New York. It was examined with mild interest by several people who all politely agreed it was, yeah, a really big bone. <laughs> and then the bone was placed into a storeroom and promptly lost. Um, over the next half a century, uh, some rather radical shifts in thinking and advances in science were occurring, and this really paved the way for our protagonists of um, Cope and Marsh. So I'll just tell you a little bit about these advances. At the end of the 18th century, jaws and claws and vertebra began to come out of the ground and be described by scientists, but there was still no formal framework for the theory of extinction. 
it's really quite interesting to think about uh, these monsters coming out of the ground without the theory of extinction. You have to kind of speculate that people are like, are they just in a forest somewhere? Like, where are they? <laughs> um, so the first formal theory of extinction was written by George Cuvier in 1796 and was met with general unease, really, particularly by the church, because multiple extinctions seem to suggest that Noah's flood was maybe only the most recent of events and that maybe God was uh, perhaps more prone to casual destruction than they previously thought. <laughs> Um, but while the world wrestled with this uncomfortable thought, William Smith was creating the map that changed the world of mon geology. Published in 1815, this map, this map co correlated the ages of rocks in Britain by using the fossils that were present in East Strata. The term paleontology was coined in 1822, two years after the first reasonably complete dinosaur skeleton was found, a hadrosaurus. The exhibition of his articulated skeleton at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia caused exhibition attendance to triple overnight. Everyone here who works for the museum thinks, yeah, triple overnight, let's do that. Um, the word and taxonomic clade of dinosauria, the terrible lizards, was named in 1841 by Sir Richard Owen, who presented a two-hour lecture to a bewildered audience describing the group containing Megalosaurus, Iguanodon, and Hylosaurus. And then the world went a bit dinosaur mad. In 1854, a life-size concrete iguanodon was built in London, and 21 scientists had a dinner party inside it on New Year's Eve. <laughs> the, dinosaur, uh, the invites were printed on fake pterosaur wings. And in 1859, On the Origin of the Species was published, outlining the theory of evolution by natural selection. So all of this momentum was leading, up to, leading towards a dinosaur gold rush, and this is where Cope and Marsh began their scientific careers. These two men had two things in common a passion for paleontology and a fiery contempt for each other. This is the story of a friendship turned into a rivalry so vicious that it left both scientists almost destitute later in life, destroying their wealth, tarnishing their scientific reputations. Bill Bryson says in a short history of, uh, a short history of almost everything, seldom, perhaps never, has science been driven forward so swiftly and so successfully by animosity. They met in Germany in 1866. Marsh was there studying natural history, and Cope was on a, tour of, a study tour of Europe. Cope was 23 years old, recently heartbroken by the girl he'd hoped to marry, and despondently staying in Europe to avoid conscription into the American Civil War. Despite a lack of formal training, by this time he had already written 37 scientific papers. Marsh, on the other hand, was a bit of a dapper gentleman, a decade older than Cope. He had two university degrees, his uncle's money at his disposal, and had written a total of two scientific papers in his lifetime. By all accounts, this first meeting went pretty well. Um, uh, Marsh showed Cope around Berlin, and they stayed together for about a week. And on return to America, Marsh went to Yale, and Cope went to the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. But they remained in close contact by sending each other letters and fossils and photographs, and even quite sweetly named a few species after one another. So what went wrong in this blossoming bromance? <laughs> Some biographers point to a field trip that they took early in their friendship, where they visited the site in New Jersey where the first complete dinosaur had been found. One look around the site showed that it was rich with fossils, just waiting to be described. When Cope's attention was diverted, though, Marsh slipped the owner of the land a thick wad of cash and got him to promise to send all of the fossils found to him alone. But one attempt in particular is noted as the absolute death of their friendship. Cope had just published a paper on a new species of plesiosaur that had been sent to him for investigation. He named the creature Elasmosaurus plateris, and published a description without realising that he had reconstructed the creature with the spine running in the wrong direction and had put the skull on the end of the tail. <laughs> on a visit to the Academy of Natural Sciences to see the reconstruction, Mark publishedly and apparently quite gleefully pointed out Cope's mistake. 
Cope was angry and embarrassed at the public slight, and he tried to purchase all the copies of the journal that had the error, but he was too late to avoid the humiliation. The dissolution of Cope and Marsh's friendship gave way to an extreme competitiveness, where both men were determined to prove who was the better scientist. Cope's publication output went from frequent to insane. Over his career, he wrote 1,400 papers and described 1,300 new species of all kinds of fossils. <laughs> I love that. <gasps> he is one of the most prolific authors in American scientific history and even purchased the American Naturalist Journal to keep pumping out species descriptions when other journals couldn't keep up. On top of this, he was frequently in the field digging for new finds. On occasion, he was hospitalised for exhaustion. His style has been referred to by contemporary paleontologists as taxonomic carpet bombing. <laughs> and this rapid pace of working often led to mistakes. He wasn't particularly gracious about corrections either and has been known to try and blame mistakes on printing errors. Marsh published less frequently and more succinctly, often correcting Cope's mistakes along the way. He was not said to be particularly good at field work and spent only four seasons in the field in person. On one trip to the famous fossil beds of Wyoming, he apparently returned empty-handed, despite the fact that bones were so numerous at that site that people built cabins out of them. <laughs> but Marsh was devious, lucky, and very well-connected, and with all the Peabody millions behind him, he could pretty much pay people to dig on his behalf. He was also not above bribing people to get his hands on good specimens. So while Cope worked furiously on his papers, Marsh sent agents out into the field to collect and acquire as much material as possible for his own study, but also as a way to keep Cope's hands off getting, get a kick, well, sorry, keep Cope's head from getting his hands off his, on his finds. Whoa, that was a tricky sentence. Um, <laughs> the cash that he was willing to spread around meant that he was soon receiving entire train cars full of fossils at Yale. Marsh and Cope began working in the Wild West with particular interest in the bone beds around Wyoming, Montana, and Colorado. The dinosaur rush was now in full force, and the cracking pace of species discoveries was creating a tangled net of classifications which isn't still fully unraveled to this day. These finds were not all unique. In fact, between them, Cope and Marsh managed to discover a species called Unitherus anceps on 22 separate occasions. But to Cope's fury and humiliation, many of Marsh's names were deemed valid by the scientific community, while fewer of his own names managed to stick. To reclaim ground, Cope published broad studies reclassifying whole groups of animals in order to decredit Marsh's work. And then things went from bad to ridiculous. There are accounts of Cope and Marsh's digging teams throwing rocks at each other. <laughs> Marsh paid spies to update him on Cope's progress. Cope paid a prospector to steal, steal bones from Marsh's dig site. Cope was caught red-handed attempting to prise open crates which belonged to Marsh. Dig crews were dynamiting their own and each other's localities to prevent the other side from getting their hands on fossils. On top of this, the local Native American population, whose lands were being dug up and occasionally blown up, were particularly unimpressed. Apparently, Cope once diffused a very tense exchange with a group of Native American locals by taking his false teeth in and out for their amusement. <laughs> their bickering soon spilled over from academic papers into newspapers and Cope produced a journal which he'd kept in his desk drawer for years in which he had written elaborate notes on every dishonest behaviour and every mistake that Marsh had ever made. This included accusations of plagiarism and mismanagement of public funds. He gave this journal to the press. Marsh was never investigated from these claims, but the affair was so ugly that Marsh was removed from his position and Cope's relationships with universities and museums turned sour. Both men's careers, finances and health dwindled after these events. They died within two years of each other. On his deathbed in 1897, Cope donated his body to science with two accompanying requests. 
The first was that he wished to become the Homo sapien type specimen. <laughs> a request which was rejected when his skeleton showed evidence of syphilis. <laughs> the second desire was to have his brain measured in the hope that his brain would measure larger than Marsh's <laughs> and prove once and for all his superior intelligence. Although their contribution to science might best serve as an example that haste creates waste and that no one will want to work with you if you're a massive dickhead, <laughs> Cope and Marsh's legacy is still apparent today. Their personal collections became the backbone of the paleontology collections of the American Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences, and the Yale, Yale Peabody Museum. Charles Darwin commented that Marsh's personal collection was the best support for the theory of evolution that he had seen. A few years after Marsh's death, the first articulated brontosaurus, now known as a patasaurus, or there may be brontosaurus again. Um, you can thank Marsh for confusing classifications when it comes to dinosaurs. Um, was prepared at the American Museum of National History. It was partially cast from Marsh's specimens, and then the exhibit was open to the public. This provided people their first opportunity to stand beneath the towering form of a sauropod and feel the scale of it against their own bodies. One of the joys of working in a museum is catching people, especially kids, in this very moment, staring up at the dinosaurs with their mouths hanging open. From first sight, dinosaurs have a way of getting their claws into you and not letting you go. Which brings me back to the theme of science heroes. The dinosaurs discovered by Cope and Marsh have been amazing ambassadors for science for the last 150 years. Although we know, what we know about dinosaurs is changing, they're quicker and smarter, more feathery than Cope and Marsh could have ever imagined, Cope and Marsh did give us the iconic dinosaurs of our childhoods, the ones of the land before time and of Jurassic Park. And there is no doubt that they did inspire generations of scientists with their discoveries. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to me, especially my always inspiring Museum Victoria colleagues. You guys are the real science heroes. <laughs> um, oh, sorry to in interrupt my applause. But um, <coughs> if I can make a quick, a quick plug for the 2016 Dinosaur Dreaming Dig season. Um, if you become a friend of the Dinosaur D Dreaming Dig project, you'll be supporting real and very well-behaved paleontologists um, and volunteers uncover Victorian d dinosaurs and mammals and learn, out what, and learn more about what our state was like in the Cretaceous period. Also, as friends of the dig, you could get to come along to the real-life paleo dig in Cape Otway National Park for a day. So sign up at dinosaurdreaming.monash.edu slash friends. Anyway, thank you.